Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park and also Not That Team. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 27, The Tour, recorded here after a fairly cool summer on August 17th, 2022. And as a bit of foreshadowing, the land cruisers enter into the park in this chapter, and some of these tourists won't return alive. And almost all of them will be dragged out bruised and bloody. <laughs> so thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Centipede, and our outro is super groovy. We have some corrections. I think I was saying in episode 24, Control with my guest Ben Lewis, that colors absorb heat. Uh, but surely I meant that colors absorb and reflect light. Uh, that was my mistake, and, and sorry for being difficult about that. And I thought the plural of apparatus would be apparati, but it's not, it's apparatuses. So Hippopotamuses in Apparatuses is the name of my next album, coming to record stores near you. In dinosaur news, the journal Nature announced a new strange dinosaur that's so strange that there isn't consensus among paleontologists of what it even is. The journal unleashed the paper, a new Cretaceous Thyreophoran from Patagonia supports a South American lineage of armored dinosaurs on the world on August 11th, 2022, and that names a new Thyreophoran, or a shield bearer, think of like Stegosaurus and Ankylosaurus, whose strange features suggest it may be one of those missing link fossils that further inform where things like Ankylosaurus come from. The abstract says, quote, the early evolution of Thyreophoran dinosaurs is thought to have occurred primarily in northern continents, since most evidence comes from the lower and middle Jurassic of Europe and North America. But the fossil record indicating how stegosaurs and ankylosaurs split is, quote, patchy, comprising only a handful of fragmentary fossils, most with uncertain phylogenetic affinities. Well, this paper reports on Jacopil caniucura, a new armored dinosaur from the early late Cretaceous, that's an oxymoron, of Argentina, which was recovered thanks to results from those phylogenetic analysis machines as a basal thyreophoran or a stem ankylosaur closely related to Scalitosaurus or Scalitosaurus. Jacopil bears, quote, unusual anatomical features showing that several traits traditionally associated with heavy Cretaceous thyreophorans did not occur universally. And what makes this truly strange is that it's the first of its kind to be from Patagonia. It appears to have been bipedal, and it shows that early thyreophorans had a, quote, much broader geographic distribution than previously thought. That said, there's some pros out there thinking this might be a ceratopsian and not a thyreophoran at all. And they're the types of pros who would know. Now that the paper is out, perhaps further investigation into this critter will reveal more truths about its place in the phylogenetic tree of our dinosaur story. The journal Peer J published on, in April 2022, the paper Ecomorphospace Occupation of Large Herbivorous Dinosaurs from the Late Jurassic through Late Cretaceous Time in North America, which was principally concerned with explaining what happened with the herbivores between the Late Jurassic and the Late Cretaceous. If you were unaware, in the Late Jurassic, there were basically only one family of giant ornithischians, and those were the stegosaurs, and then there were the supergiant sauropods, who were the saurischians. And between them, they were the biggest, most awesome terrestrial herbivores the world had ever known to that point. 
But beginning at the end of the late Jurassic, the stegosaurs went extinct and the sauropods decreased in diversity. And this paper explored this, quote, dramatic turnover in faunal composition, specifically in North America. The sauropods decline to the point of becoming, quote, relatively minor components of ecosystems. Stegosaurs became extinct and hadrosaurids, ceratopsians, and ankylosaurs rose in diversity and abundance, the paper recaps. And recall in our interview with Dr. Mallon, or at least from what I recall, uh, this might have been part of the conversation that was taken offline, but uh, really, the only only the Alamosaurus is known from the late Cretaceous of North America as a sauropod, and that was off the top of his head. And I crunched my database, and I came up with two more. There's the Dislocosaurus, which is possibly from the late Cretaceous aged lance formation, but that's not confirmed, and it was named in 1994, and the Sonorosaurus from Arizona, named in 1963, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Alamosaurus in Texas. So... Possibly only three species are known from the incredibly fossil-rich badlands of North America over a 44 million year time span. So yeah, their diversity in North America went down. And the paper says, quote, The potential for competitive replacement of sauropods by hadrosauroids as an explanation has been previously dismissed due to morphological differences without further investigation. And so this paper decided to do some of that further investigation. So with the, quote, competitive replacement theory in mind, which argues that iguanodons were so great, uh, sauropods died, and that ankylosaurs were so great that stegosaurs just died, this new paper used 12 ecomorphological correlates of the skull to assess, quote, if morphological differences were enough to have potentially facilitated dietary niche partitioning between sauropods and iguanodontians and stegosaurs and ankylosaurs. In other words, did hadrosaurs and iguanodons very chew-capable jaws and teeth outperform the sauropods leading to their demise, and similarly, did ankylosaur chewing apparatuses outperformed stegosaurs leading to stegosaur extinction. And if you believe they did, then you would believe in what is called the competitive replacement hypothesis. Well, the authors of this paper observed that there are some overlap between the sauropods and the iguanodontians, which would be expected if morphological differences were not enough to facilitate niche partitioning. A similar overlap was also observed between stegosaurs and ankylosaurs. And their conclusion is this, distribution within reconstructed ecomorpho space, suggest iguanodontians and sauropods both fed upon tough vegetation at least one meter above ground level, despite differences in processing abilities and the wider niche breadths of the former. Ankylosaurs and stegosaurs also overlapped in dietary niche, feeding on soft vegetation, growing at or below one meter, whereas late Cretaceous ceratopsids occupied their own Distinct dietary niches feeding upon tough vegetation growing at heights below one meter. These results suggest that morphological dissimilarity between taxa, particularly between iguanodontians and sauropods, was not enough to prevent competition from occurring between these clades, as had been originally claimed upon the dismissal of the competitive replacement hypothesis as an explanation for the sauropod decline in North America. The authors call for more investigation to explore whether niche partitioning and competitive replacement were the cause of the North American sauropod decline and extinction of the stegosaurs, or if it were the result of ecological competition, or an environmental change, or floral change, or, or some other factor. So they, they, they say more work should be done here. In summation, teasing out the cause or causes of the sauropod decline and extinction of stegosaurs in North America following the late Jurassic will require future research not only in the competitive exclusion hypothesis, but also hypotheses as well with better sampling from the early Cretaceous and late Cretaceous intervals. And so, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. My guest this episode is a paleo artist who has contributed his extraordinary depictions of long extinct animals and their environments to murals and novels and books and frankly, my childhood too. And he is the first guest to be on this show who is literally named 
and acknowledged in Michael Crichton's novel Jurassic Park. It is an incredible privilege to introduce uh, my listeners to paleo artist Douglas Henderson. How are you doing today? <laughs> Very good. So Douglas and I met while uh, he was pursuing Montana's Badlands, scouring over the Cloverleaf Formation and taking in the 100-million-year-old sedimentary rocks when he came across what he hoped to be a dromaeosaurus terrific raptorial claw, but it, it turned out it was just me, and he had me go stand in the discard pile of disappointments while he soldiered on. Do you remember that? Oh, uh, no, but I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever gone out prospecting for, for fossils and found like a, a cool dromaeosaur claw or anything like that in the Badlands? Mm-hmm. I've, I've discovered things. I found an Alberta sword tooth in a gully once and uh, turned it in. That's cool. So uh, the Alberta source has uh, it comes down into the the Montana area, does it? Uh, in the two medicine, yeah, in uh, west central Montana. Oh wow! I sometimes forget how very far north um, Montana is, <laughs> and Wyoming and stuff like that. incredible. So I've, I've read that you've had like a lifetime of exploring the wilderness and you mentioned you've been on like minor prospecting gigs. Um, what's that, I guess the motive while you're out and enjoying the, the great out of doors? Are you looking for inspiration or were you always just an outdoorsman or? or... I, I just enjoyed it. Yeah. I, uh, I would spend long times thinking about looking at maps, thinking what I could do during the summer and then I would go try and do it. Mm-hmm. And it was very low tech. That's cool. So, how are things different from? I guess you mentioned you moved to Montana in your twenties versus today. Like, um, I imagine the landscape's a little different. There's probably far more people living out there and things like that. Oh gosh, you can say a lot of things about Montana. Yeah. When I, when I moved here, it, it looked it looked appealing to me simply because everyone it was the, the idea of uh, property and rich and poor. It, it, it was everyone was even. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what what uh, what I hate to separate us by generations or something like that, but in the past, how things are so different then. What was able to be produced culturally speaking, and how what will be produced in the present time culturally speaking, they're, they're going to be very different products in the end uh, because because they are totally different worlds. And it'll be interesting to see you know how history looks back on all of these uh, these changes. And what impact they've had, because we we were able to label, I think, um, uh, moments in in history by uh, art and things like that, the postmodernism and the Renaissance and the uh, things like that. They all kind of art history is, has really characterized generations in a, in a respect. And it'd be interesting to see how how yeah those significant demographic changes 
will inform <laughs> our perspectives in the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, and movies have changed things, and movies get more sophisticated. And digital has has uh, has done something that I don't feel I want to be dragged into <laughs> early. Um, I, I'm, I'm st- I still like putting dirt on blank pieces of paper. I mean, that works for me when I can pull it off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that... I think people expect things to be digital now. It's almost a, a cultural shift away from how things were once done. And the pace at which people expect things to yeah. be done, it's really strange. Mm-hmm. And that pacing, I, I, yeah. I'm out of it. I mean, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm not even um, uh, working at, except for my own personal projects. And, and there, are, there are big iffy speculative things. And, and uh, uh, I, I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Capturing the wilderness and capturing landscapes, it seems to be a very important cultural part of, of at least, I'm sure in, in the U.S., but here in Canada as well. We have a, a famous tradition of outdoor painters who who are chronicled, they, they chronicled the, the Canadian wilderness, and, and there were like a dozen of them all together, but they were known as something called the Group of Seven. Yeah, the group of seven. And so they're like, uh, they're a Canadian institution and they're important to our, to our culture. And I freely admit there's something, you know, just important about the artistic depiction of the world we live in. And, and their paintings have, have, you know, culturally significant weight and importance to our nation. And it looks like when, when you were, uh, first visiting Montana and, and sketching the world that you, you were also influenced by American landscape artists who were, you know, incredible artists as well as your influences had. How important were, were like these 19th century works of art at a cultural level for you? Well, they, they became an aiming point. I thought, you know, I, I thought they were the, the supreme end uh, goal of how things should look. And I, and I aimed for that. And I can't say that I got that far, but um, certainly I did. There are a few, there, <laughs> there's a relatively few number of pictures I look at now and think, okay, that one I, that one I still think is pretty good. <laughs> And so you were looking, I guess, at some of these. Who are the? I have their names here. We've got artists like it was Thomas Moran. I've seen listed uh, Albert Barshot, yeah. Frederick Church, yeah. and William Turner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. was uh, William Turner, the, the, the English painter from 
And uh, yeah, fighting the elements. There's a lot of things to go into, like even finding like a level ground to sit on might be influencing yeah, well, how you work. Right. The, the funny thing is, I did most of my sketching in the field when I was backpacking. Uh-huh. I was always on a, a minor state of exhaustion. <laughs> Sitting down was actually a very uh, welcome thing to do, and it, and it focused your mind. I would spend hours doing something, and I would be sometimes often pleased with the results. And meanwhile, you're swatting flies. You know, worry about eating. And, but the, the nice thing about traveling for weeks or months at a time that way is you didn't have to be anywhere. There was no schedule. So if you sat down, it just indicated that you weren't going to get very much further that day, and that was fine. Mm-hmm. And I don't work that way anymore, and I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and maybe this is like a chicken and the egg question, but uh, was it? The, the Montana landscapes, or was it the, the landscape artists that first inspired you to, to start uh, sketching down what, what, uh, what was around you? Well, I'd say it was a little of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 was, I was hiking and traveling and taking photographs of landscapes long before I was doing any serious artwork. And, I mean, I took bicycle trips across the country, and I, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, and I took repeated trips in the Sierras going up and down the you know, I had a, I had a nursing job for a while in uh, in Kentucky where I lived, and I quit my job and I I went up to Canada and I walked down the continental divide from Mount Robson all the way down to Yellowstone, and that's how I ended up in Montana. I've been here since. <laughs> Montana landscapes. I think I started appreciating them in particular because I landed in Yellowstone and I stayed there. That's where I learned to taught myself to draw, and in the process, I'd always been. Dinosaurs, and they would kind of walk into some of the landscapes, and I and I got sucked into paleontology just by chance. And I, actually, now I'm trying to get back to Yellowstone. I, I actually want to uh, take all those landscapes that I have been familiar with for the last 40 years and reconstruct what they look like during the Pleistocene when the last of the ice was leaving. Oh, neat! Because you know, glacier is thought of as a uh, a glacial park, so is Yellowstone, but the ice is mostly you know, except for Um, and then there's a big difference between, like, when did you begin to recreate, I can imagine that the present um, badlands, which have been scoured and dug out by the glacial movement, is very different from recreating what it looked like in its past, in the Mesozoic or in the um, in, in the deep past. Those environments would have been like riverbeds and things like that. Is there, did you have to, I guess, learn to... to recreate an entirely different type of ecosystem than what you were traditionally looking at to, to begin to do your, your paleo art? Um, well, I would, I would, most of my paleo artwork was related to, uh, I got invited into. So I was getting data of the two medicine in Montana when I was working with Jack Horner. Mm-hmm. Then I, I, I lucked out in getting a job with a paleontologist. 
I did it, and a lot of it was speculative, but I was reconstructing what particular places looked like at a particular point in the past related to the strata that the fossils were coming from. Mm-hmm. Well, you bring up a good point. One of the the classic childhood depictions of dinosaurs, a two-dimensional picture of a dinosaur facing like straight left, and then you put a volcano in the background erupting, and that's kind of like your your traditional childhood sketch. I don't recall you, I can't think of any volcanoes that you've done erupting. Uh, Oh, I've done a few. Okay. (laughs) All the way back to first grade, I think. Okay, right, right. Mm-hmm. In conventions, and, um, you know, you start out doing work that, that reflects what you've seen, and then if you realize that's what you're doing, you, you try and do something that's more a mark of, of, of you know, your own brand to it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you quite think of it that way, but you you want to do something that's original. You don't want to just repeat yourself. I got I I was very uncomfortable doing anything more than a few times. I felt I, I, I had to switch on subjects or other mediums. I, Did you ever find it frustrating that you couldn't use grass when you were making dinosaur uh, pictures? Yeah. I understand that I, grass yeah. didn't evolve yet into the the very late Cretaceous or something like that. So you that, that may actually be changing, but I is that right? Yeah, I, I avoided. I understood that you weren't supposed to use grass, and there were all these other things, other plants that were supposed to fill in for them, like ground pines, mm-hmm. equatetum, and uh, arid conditions. I think the, the trend for a while was just make the place look like a desert. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what a bummer, because grass might have made things a bit easier, eh? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I probably, uh, 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 yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, that's, uh, but, you know, good. that's, I think, what makes um, it really feel like you've, you've gone back into another world when you, when you go into these environments that are, as best as can be done, an authentic representation. That's why they look different, as opposed to just looking like a, like a dinosaur walking around in the park across the street or something, right? speculative. I mean, I... I, I tried to put animals in environment, mm-hmm. and I was way out in front of the, what the data would let you really do, and I, so I just did the best I could. You know, a, a lot of it's just imaginary, or you know, the, the association of, of uh, you know, the compositions were based on things I saw today that I just sort of tried to modify to the past. And, and if you do, you had cycads and maybe tree ferns and conifer forests early flowering plants that very much resemble what you see today, uh, then you had something to work with, but there's nothing I did that you could point to and say that's exactly what it looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not in the cards, you know. 
I suppose if you had a, an entire scene, it was just on a single piece of petrified wood. You, that would be about this. <laughs> well, you know, you, you have the pollen and the strata, you have bits and pieces of plants, which you can't even wholly reconstruct properly often. Mm -hmm. but you don't know what, what, what leaves to put to what trees. Or in, the, in the case of petrified forest, they had um, petrified logs that had one name attached to them, and they appeared to be like four different kind of conifers. And they were coming up with various kinds of leaves, but they didn't know what to attach to what. So no. you didn't worry about that. You, <laughs> you, rep, you did generic things that represented what you thought the trees looked like. Mm -hmm. the, real, the real difference, say, with petrified forest was that the fossil trees told you how the limbs break. And everyone kept representing petrified forest trees as these lollipop-topped aracaria. Mm -hmm. And that is not what they look like. Okay. They're more like Monterey cypress. Super Utah junipers. That's what they look like, and, uh, and so that's why I, that's how I tried to draw them. Awesome! I think Super Utah junipers would be the great a great name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, what was the the step between sketching uh, landscapes and then doing like? Uh, at what point did you begin professionally going into like Mesozoic landscapes? How did where was the the what what pulled you into that sphere? Mm -hmm. And I drew, and, uh, and then I, I, when I started hiking, I, I think my interest expanded, and I, I, I did a lot of hiking for years before I realized that I wanted to draw them. I ended up writing what I was seeing in journals. Mm -hmm. But, in, but in, uh, in, in 1980, I, I set out to uh, just dedicate a summer to sketching the field, to draw. I, I was trying to learn to draw. I was trying to get, you know, symbolic things that worked for me. Because I was seeing how wonderfully well done uh, sketches have been done in the field by, by 19th century landscape painters. And there was no internet, so I didn't know what was going on currently. I was blind to what was contemporarily, <laughs> but I, I could hit books and see what had been done. And that's what I tried to follow. Okay. I spent months sketching in the Sierras, you know, trees, landscape. And, and it's crude, and yet you can see that I was picking up on things. And I brought that back in. My initial plan was to finish work from sketches, but when I lived in Bozeman, I got sucked into a little paleo crowd at the Museum of the Rockies. Mm -hmm. And so I started um, almost begging to do dinosaur illustrations. I would show up and show Jack what I was working on, and he finally asked me to, to, to work on a children's book, and so that turned into a, a long ordeal. Okay. And that's how the, the illustrations started and, and also uh, uh, I started working color and I, I I have no color I have no training in art at the time but I I had working in color was just a mystery but I I happened to see someone's pastel uh, in the art department at MSU and I thought well, you know maybe that's the way to go and so I started working in pastel it took years to get like it was I thought the work was crude at first the funny thing about that children's book is you can see the crude work and the more refined work, the whole, the whole span of wording and technique is represented in that crazy little book. And, um, and I, I finally got to where I made pastel work to the extent that I could figure it out. I, you, I see other people's work online now, and it's amazing because they, I, I, have, I, I just don't have an affinity for color. I, I struggle with it. I much prefer working black and white mm -hmm. so I could get. 
I can appreciate that. Yeah, adding color is like a whole other dimension. <laughs> yeah, it's very sophisticated, and I, I just clotted my way through things. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, walk me through. Like, meeting Jack Horner, uh, who is obviously another person, another character, another real-life uh, paleontologist who, who appears in, in Jurassic Park as well. as a big, I guess, uh, reference point for Michael Crichton in terms of building up his character of Alan Grant. How did you meet uh, Dr. Horner? How did uh, how did that relationship build and, and to, to a point where you're... Uh, you know, an illustrator for one of his books. Oh, well, let's see. I think Jack was auditioning or, or wanting a, a job at the Museum of the Rockies, and he came for a, for an interview, and I and I think it was publicly announced. So I showed up with dinosaur drawings, and he could sort of look at them, and he's very diplomatic. <laughs> and, uh, and when they hired him, I showed up again. And I don't think they knew quite what to do with me because I wasn't an employee. But he set me off on, on doing this children's book, and I took it seriously. You know, I was doing other things in addition to that. I was doing my own landscape work and sketching and drawing and taking trips to the Sierras. But uh, I, I just sort of you know, invited myself into the, into the group at the museum and ended up going to the field camp a few years and working in the working in some boat beds. Once I did the work for Jack, I had a body of work that I could show other people, even if it wasn't published yet. I, you know, I tell them, "This is what I do. Would you like me to do something like this?" Mm-hmm. That that was my career. Just sort of slowly crystallized around something very little into something that worked for a, a few decades. Mm-hmm. And certainly, Jack probably had you just do a whole bunch of Mayasora, right? Uh, well, yeah. I think <laughs> this is the how they behaved, how they migrated. Mm-hmm. How they uh, raised their young, and that was all reflected in the work I did. In addition to the the illustrations for the children's book, I did a lot of other things on my own that the museum liked well enough that they bought it. I think I um, had a notion that if I had been hired to be an illustrator, I could have spent twenty years doing things related to what the museum was interested in. But they, you know, they weren't really interested in illustration. It was me doing the stuff. Mm-hmm. They just sort of decided, well, you know. This is okay, and he, they, they bought the work and they used it, but it, it, I don't know. I think the whole pro, paleontology program at the museum was related to doing new exploration work. It was not related to illustration. And I, I looked at it differently, but well, it, it, was a, it was a boon to me to, to do it. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Well, the Mayasaur stuff looks cool. Like it's Those are awesome, too. When you, when you start getting into the paleo art, you really got to start looking into the academic papers. Did you did you find that you were going through the papers, or were you speaking, relating with the paleontologists, or how were you getting like the, those final important decisions when you when you were recreating the animals in, in the art? I did not do a lot of um, my own original research because I don't think I was I understood it. I when I when I looked at technical papers, I was looking for clues as to environmental situations of how you should depict the landscape, which, what, it, what the place looked like. I mean, I, I remember asking one of Jack's students, well, how wide was this river? How deep was it? I wanted to know stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it came to anatomy, I just remember uh, feeding off uh, Robert Bacher's and Greg Paul's uh, reconstructions, and I just I just picked up the anatomy from, from that. Okay. I can't say it was very original. I the extent to which Greg Paul influenced everyone else almost goes unspoken. It's like everybody <laughs> just gyrated to his representation of these bird-like animals. And, and he was out there with feathers before anybody else was as well. Unless you go back to the really early 19th century illustrators were 
are considered feathers, too. Mm-hmm. Well, you had feathers on your dinosaurs in the 80s, didn't you? Mm, I don't think so. I have... I'm getting ahead of myself here. I have a book called Time Machine, and it's uh, it's a, oh, yeah. an episode called The Last of the Dinosaurs. And I'm certain in here there is a... Yeah, and it's one of my favorites. <laughs> and I'm certain there's a, uh, a raptor in here with, with, with yeah, uh, some feathers. I think I put feathers on for it. Yeah, no, that's right. I, I, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a funny thing. The, the publisher of that was, uh, what was the name? Um, do you have it there? What was it? I have it. It's, um, <clears throat> like I said, I got ahead of myself in my notes here, so I don't have uh, that. But this book should have been in the early 80s. <laughs> 1988, and it was written by Peter Hayes? No, no, that's dedicated to Not Peter Hayes. Is a publisher of oh, it's published by... Was, uh, was, uh, was Bantam Books. Oh, God, I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, you know, back, back when I was struggling, all these things I was doing for the museum uh, mm-hmm. for years was speculation on my part. I wasn't really being paid anything. And, uh, and other minor things would come along. I mean, I would shovel snow, and I would do maintenance in the in the in the apartment where I live. Sometimes the fellow who was running visual publications every now and then would come to me and ask me to do outline work for these pulp books, and he would take those outlines, and I would be well paid for this. It was amazing. I thought, gosh, people get paid this much to do the artwork. I had no idea. <laughs> cool well my mom bought one of those books for me when i was a kid so um happy to do my part (laughs) (laughs) well eventually i i I did my own pen and inks for one of those publications Mm -hmm. so uh this is kind of a tangential question but having having met and 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 collaborated with jack corner a little bit it's said in the novel that or it said i guess generally speaking that alan grant was based very closely on on uh dr horner what kind of uh, similarities between that character in the book do you recall being distinctly like a Jack Hornerish quality? Oh God, um, I, I, I don't. I think you should ask Jack that question. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to. You have to. You have to slip me his number. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I'd say the person. I'd say the dedication to the to the science was there. Mm-hmm. But in terms of personality, Jack was really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I understand, like, academically, like, all of the, the material, it seems like the career seemed to be very heavily entrenched in, in Jack Horner's, what is, I guess, the mythology of Jack Horner now. Like, his, his story career is well, well, uh, documented. Well, now, that, when, when I, when I wandered into the Museum of the Rockies, Jack was kind of like a rock star, or was becoming one. Yeah. And I, and I, I could, I could see it happening as I was around there because the, the, the news people who would show up and cover his discoveries were just gaga over they just they it was just amazing to see and I I thought, you know, I there's there's less to this than, than I than they see. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. Is he an illustrator? Does he draw dinosaurs well as also? No, no, he, he did some sculptures 
they're actually very nicely done of his juvenile hadrosaurs, mm-hmm. uh, which were refined with time. That's interesting because there's a they make it in, they, they make a mention that Alan Grant also does the illustrations for his own books. And when I started looking more into it, because he's also tied up with the dinosaur heresies philosophies that were a big part of what Robert Bacher did. And so I thought it was interesting because I believe Bacher, when I found he's got an extraordinary depiction of the uh, Deinonychus. So Bacher, I... I well, Bacher was, was, a, was a fine, fine graphic artist mm-hmm. uh, reconstructing uh, his, his ideas. Jack did draw. Mm-hmm. He was, he, he did um, sculptures because he wanted to be, I think it was, it, it factored into how he wanted to reconstruct how the animal would be raised. Mm-hmm. And uh, he changed the design of time as he found more material. And that influenced the illustrations for the book. And I had to go back and change the shape of all the little babies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. So it's interesting to see that, uh, obviously, Crichton based Alan Grant on a variety of different... I, I think he had an idealized form of what a paleontologist should be. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll have to, uh, this is kind of a big segue so I can brag about myself a little bit, but I remember when I was little, um, the first time I drew a dinosaur that I really, really loved was, in, it was a Dimetrodon. I, I remember distinctly, I drew it in, in 3D for the first time. You know, when you're a kid, it's always just like left to right, and it's a profile image of, of the dinosaurs. It looks like it could be a cookie cutter or something like that. I, yeah, they're okay. Well, you get a, yeah, profiles are cool, but so this was a Dimetrodon and it looks so cool because I can still picture it. It had its, its head and then its, its shoulders were kind of behind it and then the frill tapered into the back and then the, uh, the, the, the rear hips were splayed out and there's this lengthy, like soggy looking tail that curled back towards, uh, its haunches. And I remember I could still picture it in my head. It's like, that was the first time. And I tried to recreate that with different dinosaurs and stuff and I couldn't do it. I got lucky that first time. But the first time I drew a dinosaur and it, and it, didn't look childish. I can remember that day. Do you have a memory of like your favorite thing to draw when you were when you were just getting into dinosaurs, or or like a a, a, a watershed moment where you, you took that step and you go, ah, yes, drawing dinosaurs could be something to be actually profitable as opposed to just fun. Well, my, my progress in drawing was embarrassingly late. <laughs> um, I I I drew like crazy when I was in elementary school and junior high. And I was influenced, I think my biggest influence back then was Victory at Seas. It was a television program, uh, uh, which was a compilation of, uh, of World War II footage depicting, uh, the progress of, uh, uh, World War II from the standpoint of naval operations. It was, uh, it was wedded with this magnificent score written by Richard Rogers. Mm-hmm. Victory at Sea would be would be uh, the 
score to Star Wars. Okay. Neat. Any, anyway, but yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I reached a point where the, where I realized the work wasn't good. It needs to get better. And it just gradually evolved until I got better. But I, I don't know how to describe it. I, uh, my early landscape work, landscape was difficult to find a, a, a technique that, mm-hmm. you know, with lines that represents what's there. It took me a long time. It took me years. And, and I didn't have any schooling and I, I suffered, I think, from the fact that I um, didn't learn any shortcuts. I, I didn't learn what has already been known. I, I stumbled into things that worked for me, mm-hmm. and I stuck with them. So. Uh, that's the convincing, like I said, transportational part that really puts you back is actually having a, you know, an authentic-looking or a believable paleo environment, or else the, the picture is just, like I said, a, a dinosaur out in the park or something like that. All the labor, all the heartache, all the struggle that went into it, it, it paid off for sure. So Crichton tells us in the novel that the best paleontologists are the ones who make the most clever deductions based on the fossil record. So when you're doing your work, there must be a tremendous amount of like creative license in terms of interpreting what the dinosaurs are. Uh, but at the same time, there's a, like a strict adherence as well to, to the science. Like how do you balance the important elements of, of, of um, what you imagine and what you need to put in? How do you, how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. Doing a lot of work that had been done over the years was the extent to which people would put too many animals in the picture. Okay, right, right. And I, wandering around in nature, you know, you usually just saw one thing or one group of things at a time. And so it was the pace at which things unfolded that had a lot to do with why a scene looked natural. Mm-hmm. That's how I tried to draw them. And um, and I, that would go right back to just spending years wandering around in the woods. How do you balance being like true to the science or true to what the the, the paleontologists have told you versus? Well, you know, the, 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 some, sometimes uh, you'd be asked to do something very specific, mm-hmm. and uh, and other times they just give you the data and, and you would run with it. And, and most of the, most of the time, people liked what they saw, and, uh, because I was kind of conservative as to, as to what I had them doing. I was much more interested in which direction the light was coming from. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I don't want to run out of time here, and because I got questions about Myasaur, I've got questions about um, about the books and the, and the drawings. But I want to get into the Jurassic Park part. You're you're telling me that you you started reflecting upon how you got involved and in, in your in, you know immersion into into that world. How did you first understand that you were going to be Acknowledge in the book. How did you discover that? What, what uh, I guess was your journey? Do you know what images were were used that, that Crichton found in particular uh, influential in his depictions of the animals? I have, I have no idea what um, Michael Crichton saw of my work, and I I was surprised to see my name mentioned in, in the back of, of the book when it came out. Mm-hmm. My 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 first understanding that I was going to do anything related to the movie came from a friend of mine in Berkeley who had stuck up for me and I think said the right thing to the right person at the right time and <laughs> helped me get hired to do that mural part and the, and the sequence to that is a kind of a long story probably more than you want to hear but well there's got to be some fun highlights in there I was working for the paleontologist Montana on speculation and I thought you know I really need money and I, <laughs> I think I must have written a letter to Don Glute who was the author of Dinosaur Dictionaries yes asking if he knew of anyone who needed dinosaur illustrations to and he wrote back and said, there's this guy in Berkeley named Rob Long who's working with the trash and he's looking for an illustrator. 
So he gave me his address. I sent slides, which was the uh, medium of, of communication back then, to, to Rob. And he called me on the phone right back and said, my God, you're this is amazing. I want you to work on several books I'm doing. And he was reconstructing the Triassic of Petrified Forests. And that's plants, animals, invertebrates, reptiles, amphibians, the whole flora. And I thought, this is exactly what I want to do. And so I ended up working for a number of years on a second speculative book at the same time with doing the first one. Right, so I was doing work for free for a couple of years, sending Rob all these illustrations were turned out to be some of the best stuff I ever did. And, uh, and that turned into a book, into a paying job, finally. But Rob was acquainted with New Phil Tippett. Okay. New Phil Tippett, my work, and so when I ended up going to Berkeley for the SUP, SVP, decided for a paleontology meeting sometime in the 80s um, with the Museum of the Rockies, um, well, I met Rob for the first time, and he introduced me to Phil, and Phil sat me down in his living room and showed me something he was working on in his garage called Prehistoric Beasts. Okay. And uh, and I subsequently did some design work for, for Phil. Phil Tippett had a lot to do with the original design ideas for uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah. And so he remembered me, and he uh, and he called me and said, you know, they need this mural, and you're going to do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he told me how not, not to less not to ask less from so much money. Because <laughs> I was still pretty naive. That's the first time I'd done anything for Hollywood, I think. Right on. And they got the money. <laughs> I, yeah, they had, yeah, they got the copyright, too. So I, I'm, I'm very careful not to let anyone... I, I, I don't let anyone reproduce that image. Okay. So the mural, when you're describing the mural in the in the film, which, uh, which part of the film is that specifically in? Well, it, it's there to see if you're looking every now and then, but it's the scene where a dinosaur, a Deinonychus or a Velociraptor steps out from behind its own image. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The little girl is, is with the shaking jello on the spoon. Okay, right. And that, that's, and everyone seems to think I'm, I had a major part to play in that movie. And I just did this little pastel that they blew up huge size. That, that's my claim to fame. Okay, so in the visitor center, there's a, yes, a mural of all the dinosaurs one would see in the park as they're, I guess, in the restaurant? Yeah, well, one side's uh, uh, a cafeteria, and the other side was a uh, research facility, I think. Right. Okay, that's so cool. And then, and then when they, one of the more recent movies made in the franchise, they had to reproduce that mural. Okay. Yeah. And they couldn't find the material used in the first one. Oh, no. no nobody saves anything. And so I had, I had to go through my transparencies, and I, I found one, there was one left, and I sent it to them, and I told them, Make a good scan of this and save it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting. And I, and I didn't have the copyright either. They had to get permission from Amblin to use it, I think. Did you do the whole mural? Yeah, but I it was small. It was just a small pastel. Really? It was more than 30 inches long and 12 inches high, something like that. And okay. They reproduced it. And I shot a 4x5 transparency of it. And they scanned it. And they produced this huge mural from it. And I'm surprised it... it yeah, that's incredible. Oh, Hollywood. Is there anything they can't do? <laughs> well, that's that's really fascinating. Okay, that's so cool. Uh, uh, and they also own the pastel, which apparently they've lost. So. Uh, oh, Hollywood. <laughs> you give and you take. So you mentioned that you were surprised to find your name in the novel. 
did somebody like tip you off or had you read the book and or like what was that moment of discovery like? I no one tipped me off. I read the book. Yeah. I don't know if I looked in the back and saw it, but I just noticed it. And thought, oh, that's nice. I got mentioned. I, I have no idea what it was he saw. Although I would attribute, I would attribute that success to um, to the circus because they had some exhibits in the works, one of which was in L.A. Mm-hmm. And it had some of my work in it, along with Greg Paul and a few other people. It was the um, dinosaur past and present exhibit. And I think that must have been what he saw, because there was nothing of my work touring around at the time other than that. Okay. And so the other artist, uh, you mentioned Gregory Paul. We got, uh, is Gregory Paul mentioned? I don't know that he is. Oh, here he is. Yes, of course. Mark, Mark Hallett and uh, perhaps Joan Civic. We got uh, Mark Hallett, yeah. Yourself, William Stout. Yeah, Stout, of course. And uh, Kenneth Carpenter, Margaret Colbert, Hello. Stephen and Sylvia Circus. Yeah, Sylvia Circus. Okay, when you said the circus exhibit. <laughs> okay, okay. Forgive me, the, uh, I thought you meant, like, a three-ring circus. My bad. <laughs> That's terrible. Okay. Yes, the circus, the, the amazing stuff. Okay, so you got to be a part of that exhibit, and that was in oh, an... Oh, I, I, only, I only just realized what you meant. Okay. <laughs> My mistake. Uh, well, that's fascinating. So, you, presumably, he went to this exhibit... And yeah, saw all of it, took all of your names down. He must have taken photos and, and stuff like that. He must have been very um, inspired by that. That's great. And he wouldn't be the first person inspired by your work, for sure. Uh, well, you know, since, since the internet had come into existence, I realized there are lots of people who know who I am. Okay. And up until then, I had no idea. <laughs> Secretly famous. <laughs> so I have to ask you more about um, th- this Time Machine book. You mentioned that it was... Um, good for you uh when you go to like some of these pictures are really 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 neat how long does it take to illustrate uh enough pictures for a whole book oh it takes time yeah yeah yeah, it takes patience uh, which i think i have less of now Uh. (laughs) Uh, uh, the pen and ink was not a technique i was good at i struggled with it i think i think uh that's why my outline work which was actually uh carefully done uh, was sent to someone else to ink in, although I thought I could have done a better job. Mm-hmm. I, ultimately, they let me do one. In, in my, I, it's okay. It's not great. I mean, it's really kind of naive and an inkworth. There's nothing. There's no flourish to it. But the composition is mine, I guess. Like you were saying, with, with color, it's a different animal. But then when you are doing a black and white, the use of you know, distinct tones and different grays and stuff like that. Like with the pen in, in this particular, it's black and white and you got to use the contrast to your advantage and it's a uh, really powerful, good focus, you know, focal points. Now, I was, I was in the stipple. I was trying to get subtly as best I could in the pen and mm-hmm. Well, there are oh, some of the, I'm looking at them right now. Really cool. And there's so much, you're, you're capturing a really interesting moment. There's a lot of life in, in each of the, the, the pictures where, you know, the action's just about to start or something like that. It's really incredible. Well, you know, when, when, you, when you talk about that emphasis on life, I'm, I'm thinking of my experiences in Yellowstone, in which tourists will stop dead in the road to see an animal. Mm-hmm. But they're driving through this landscape that they don't see. I, I get the impression people don't really see where they are. And, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> correct that in myself at the moment, because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wander off in the places that are hard to get to, so mm-hmm. they're 
pictures, although um, I, I enjoy her in Buffalo. <laughs> One of the localities in, in the novel is, of course, um, Snakewater and uh, Chateau. Have you have you been in into both of these areas in Montana? Uh, Snakewater and the Chateau. Oh, the Chateau is, yeah, Chateau was the borders of Mahathara that came between the town of Chateau and the Rocky Mountain Front out of the plains. It's pronounced Chateau, is it? Okay. Yeah, and I, yeah I'm familiar with that. I, I worked there during uh, a couple summers, not for pay, but just, just to, to be there. And then I I showed up one day with a 4x5 camera and I shot landscapes uh, in black and white and I, I caught a storm that arrived in the morning, which was really spectacular. Mm. The lighting was just amazing. And uh, I put it all away before the rain hit, but <laughs> but I wandered around on high points and the, the, the people ranch where, this, where, these, where the um, two medicine strata are exposed is kind of low badlands and gullies and, and, a, and, a, and a nice high butte. And on the other side of that butte was a bit of a missile cycle. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm. That is strange. <laughs> you get the, the, these areas that are kind of untouched by man and then of course, and then a missile silo. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very, very open. Uh, nobody there. Just a, just a dirt road that was so long that it just sort of disappeared in the distance like railroad tracks. And, and it was... Uh, Mm-hmm. I, I did a few sketches, uh, but most of the time I was just helping Jack on new bones, getting bit by bugs. <laughs> so I've, I've noticed in a lot of your artwork that you, in in some instances, portray, I guess, the act of the hunt or the, the striking blow uh, just before it occurs. But I haven't seen a lot of uh, depictions of uh, the actual predation of, of a carcass. Is that something you've done that I just haven't seen, or is that something you kind of have opted not to really journey into the guts of an animal? I remember doing one in which a couple of Albertasaurs are chewing on a hadrosaur in mm-hmm. the middle of a river I, for a children's book that I did. But you're right, there aren't many examples. It's always like the, the anticipation is for <laughs> That's right. That's more effective than the, than the gruesome uh, aftermath. Well, I suppose there's more life in the scene uh, before the life has been taken, right? So that's a more uh, animated portrayal to depict, for sure. Well, that, that was the, the neat thing about uh, Tippett's uh, uh, Dinosaur Beast, which was a stop action. You know what it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, the, it's the, the slow, the pacing of it, the, the lovely light, and then the uh, indication of danger, which is simply first glimpses of danger. And then it elevates to complete slaughter. Yes. Yes, that, that scene where the Tyrannosaur is what encroaching upon the Centrosaur. Is it Centrosaurus? And I think he's. The little, little Centrosaur eating flowers. Yeah, it's a wonderful scene. And then he, he gets stalked. And yeah, the, the inescapable uh, termination is, is really impactful. <laughs> it's pretty intense. It's more intense than anything in Jurassic Park, which is saying well, something. Yeah, and I, it, was, it was genius. I've got one of my favorite posters of yours I have is, um, it's called Diplodocus and Allosaurus, or at least that's what it's labeled here. We've got three Allosaurs, um, kind of standing around a Diplodocus 
wondering what they're going to do. <laughs> and I think that Diplodocus is wondering what they're going to do as well. Is, is uh, black and white? It is all black and white. And it's... Yeah, uh, tail holding the three at a day. Is, okay, yes. Yeah. And it's just... Um, it's beautiful. The black and white contrast, on the, kind of like a foggy background, is yeah. just astonishing. The profiles are... Are, they hint enough of the detail, but... Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm burying what I don't know. And, uh, and, uh, and the, the graphite just worked that time really well. There was a paper I liked, which no one made. Mm-hmm. I, I can't get back to doing work like that. <laughs> so... I, that, that was a drawing done for the Zirkus for their book, uh, Dinosaurs, A Global View. Okay. And that was, that was one of the works where the Zirkus wanted me to do something else because I had suggested an idea. And they went with it, and I decided it wasn't going to work, so I did something else. So I just, I just on chance did that, sent it in, and they had no choice but to use it. <laughs> I see. Well, it's amazing. So how big is the original? Um, 18 by 24 inches. I rarely worked larger than that. Really? It's astonishing how much detail you get. Oh, um, well, pencil point, you can do a lot in a little space. Yeah. I suppose there's people who do like artwork on grains of sand, so I believe you, but <laughs> it still blows me away, that's for sure. I guess the other thing to mention is that the, uh, the original drawing is probably not as contrasty as the finished. Okay. Because I I would do my own copy work, and I had a bedroom set up with lights, and, you know, set at the right angles and curtains, so that I was basically in a great big camera mm-hmm. shooting where only the light was going on the artwork, and the graphite was so glossy, <laughs> I had to polarize it put the lights at greater and greater angles to the surface of the painting. Mm-hmm. That, uh, the, what was on the film had more contrast than the original work. And it was the film, it was the image of the film that gets published. Right. And I got to the point where I actually anticipated doing that for all my graphic work. I just, I used the polarization. And also when you sprayed it, but fix it to the black shot blacker than the graphite. And so I just tried to factor all that in when working out how it would look yeah, just amazing, and so like when you're working with graphites or, or especially with uh, with these, like, how do you do? You work out like go from left to right, or how do you keep your hand from? I mean, what is your strategy for keeping from smudging or something like that? And, and oh yeah, smudging was a problem, so I would do all the dark work first. Yeah, then I would fix it with fixatives. Okay, and then I would go in and do the background of the background, and, uh, and and where the where the graphite contaminated what was already done, I could I could. I can remove it without damaging the, the dark work because it was under the acrylic layer. So, I, yeah, I would do the dark ground first. All the Bristol paper and, and soft graphite just does amazing total values. Then I would use a need eraser to pluck stuff away if it got too... If I wanted to get something, some sort of odd little detail, I could pluck it away with a need eraser. So I could put it, put it down, pick it up. It, it was an interesting way to work. It worked for me anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's like a, a bit of text that accompanies the, the poster. Do uh, Would you have provided the text or would that be something that somebody else added? I may have written it, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah? Okay, right on. So it you sounds can... like you're doing, is this a big poster with text all the bottom? Yes. Yeah, I probably wrote it and it was published by uh, Roger D. in England, I think. It says here it was made in 1990, the same time... This Jurassic oh, Park came out. The book was published. Yeah, amazing. This has been so cool. 
I have to say the some of the Triassic stuff as well that you've done. I don't know how with uh, with a pencil you create humidity, but the, <laughs> the pictures look sticky to walk around in. And uh, no, I, people tell me these sensations that these works bring to them, but I, you know, all I can say is that's what you're bringing to the artwork. I suppose the artwork so. Works. It isn't just the thing itself; it's what you bring to it, mm-hmm. how you respond to it. So. Well, but the artwork provokes that, I suppose. Something fat. Okay, that's amazing. Anyhow, I don't know how you do it. Uh, if I could do anything better, it would be draw backgrounds because <laughs> they make all the difference in the world. And uh, yeah, you master them. Well, this has been a wonderful time. Was there uh, was there anything that we didn't get to that you were thinking? Boy, I'd love to talk about that. Oh no, no, that, no, this is fine. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for 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 joining me and agreeing to do this goofy podcast. All right. Well, well, I I enjoyed it. It, it went it went better than I. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> I mean, your, your, your questions are pretty sophisticated, let me put it that way. Mm. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed this. And uh, someday if some other famous thing happens, you're welcome to try again. So, okay. Well, all right. I will. And thank you so much. It's uh, I had never thought when I when I got the poster, when I got the, I never thought I'd ever get a chance to chat with you. So this has been wonderful. All right, an incredible thank you to Mr. Douglas Henderson for joining us on the podcast today. Here is the truth. I used to cut pages out of Time Magazine and National Geographic whenever they had a dinosaur special and put those those pictures in the, from those pages up on my walls and I put my own sketches up all over the place on my room. But I've in my entire life only ever bought one piece of dinosaur artwork and that was Douglas Henderson's Diplodocus and Allosaurus, which is so haunting and enthralling. It was a real, a real privilege to have him on, on as a guest today, so... Thanks, Doug. Uh, the text, this week's text is the tour, spanning from pages 134 to 137. As a synopsis, amidst arguments and drama between Malcolm and Gennaro, the tour begins as the consultants and kids climb into the automated Toyota Land Cruisers and begin their park tour. They visit the Hypsilophodon Highlands, seeing the Hypsilophodons and Othnelia in their paddock. Characters. We have Ed Regis, Regis ushers everyone along continuing the tour when tim asks to ride with the consultants regis says they've got technical things to discuss saying tim must ride in the second cruiser though makes no mention that it's strictly uh two or four passengers per vehicle uh limit on page 134 we're told so regis doesn't care about the rules he just doesn't want the kid in there so to appease tim regis says they can listen in to the first car when he turns on the intercom and they immediately overhear Gennaro being very upset with Malcolm on 135. So Regis interrupts them. And he presents the Land Cruisers as environmentally friendly and adroitly lets the first car know that the kids can hear their argument via the intercom as a friendly reminder. Interrupting the argument in the first car, Regis begins the tour, which launched with an automated fanfare of trumpets and the interior screen flashes Welcome to Jurassic Park. And an automated pre-recording by Hollywood elite Richard Kiley impressively welcomes them. And Regis boasts that they spared no expense to bring Kylie in to lead the tours on 135. We have a woman. Beside Ed Regis is this woman, and she's handing out pith helmets. If you're having trouble envisioning a pith helmet, think of uh, it as the type of helmet you might wear if you're presuming someone is Dr. Livingstone. Uh, They're also known as a safari helmet popularized by European travelers and explorers who traipsed about in Africa and South America and the tropics. And they have um, like a brim for the sun and are topped with a peaked almost dome shape. And these hats feature Jurassic Park on the headband around the dome and a blue dinosaur logo. 
There are two black men. Two black men in safari uniforms open the doors for the passengers on page 134, and they also close the doors for everyone once they've climbed in the vehicles as well on 135. We've got Tim. Tim asks to ride the, with the four consultants because he'd rather not ride with Lex and would be interested in the technical things they might be discussing, we're told on 134, and he acquiesces because he can overhear the conversation via the open radio between the cars. Oh yeah, and Tim has binoculars all of a sudden. On page 136, there's no mention of binoculars until right now, and Tim's got them. Were they in the car? Was he carrying them? We don't know, but he's got them now. Uh, when a mating call is played to stimulate the animals, six lizard heads poke up above the three-foot-high yellow grass to comical effect, making Tim laugh on 137. And it's blasted a second time, and the animals react exactly the same way. This fixed repetition of the behavior was striking to Tim. And we should take note, because what Tim notices, we should notice. Pay attention because this fixed repetitive behavior is going to repeat uh, with other herbivores as they move along. Lex, waiting to board the land cruisers, Lex pounds her fist into her baseball glove on 135, and Lex is eager to see the dinosaurs at their first stop on 136, and she is astonished to hear that the dinosaurs might be up in trees. She thinks that's fun. But the animals aren't doing anything, and Lex finds that boring on 137. Ian Malcolm rides in the first Land Cruiser as they depart. He and the other passengers are talking and pointing and clearly are excited, we're told on 135. And he's drawn the ire of Gennaro. Obviously, his things will become clear later on in the tour comment is being taken like he's being coy and puzzling rather than just being forthright. And Gennaro doesn't like it. Sattler, she also rides in the first Land Cruiser, and she's among the people talking and pointing and being clearly excited, uh, as well as Grant. Grant also rides in that first Land Cruiser, Equally pointing, uh, equally excited. Gennaro rides in the first Land Cruiser, and he is furious at Ian Malcolm. He expects the consultants to be forthright with their comments, but instead finds Malcolm playing, quote, goddamn mind games on page 135. Gennaro reiterates, his company has a 5% stake in this enterprise and a responsibility to ensure Hammond has been responsible. Gennaro represents his investors, and so I guess this would come with sort of a client-attorney privilege, which he cannot do in front of these kids, which upsets him. Quote, I have to be able to speak freely, he says on 135. The kids don't really keep him from asking important questions. They just keep him from swearing without feeling like he's harming innocent ears, right? And I feel like this is part of him be just, you know, just being a dad. As you may recall, who is missing his daughter Amanda's fourth birthday back home this weekend, so he could be here. Richard Kiley. Richard Kiley is a sonorous voice, and Ed Regis is proud to say we spared no expense, suggesting that Kiley is an A-list celebrity to affiliate with the park on 135. His script notifies tourists of what they can see from their land cruisers, and Kylie's incredible acting career was being specifically recognized in the late 1980s while this book was being written, with a Golden Globe Award for the Best Actor in a Television Series Drama and a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series for A Year in the Life uh, for 22 episodes between 1986 and 1988. And I can recall him portraying a terrific villain in an episode of Columbo. Go watch that one. I recommend it. Uh, we have dinosaurs too. We've got Hypsilophodon. We're first told that the Hypsilophodons are located in the Hypsilophodon Highlands on page 84. These are described as the gazelles of the dinosaur world. Small, quick animals that once roamed everywhere in the world from England to Central Asia to North America. They were successful because of their jaws and their teeth were better adapted for chewing plants than their contemporaries on page 136. And our news article is all about, hey, if jaws are better than your contemporaries, you get to win. The Hypsilophodons are said to be dull green with a mottling of dark browns and blacks that extend down their slender necks on 137. They're said to be as smart as domestic cows, and then they behave like domestic cows, chewing and working their jaws. In our interview uh, last episode with Dr. Jordan Mallon, he said explicitly 
that these dinosaurs didn't have the jaws to chew like a cow, or really at all, in fact. Later in the book, we're going to get into gastroliths, which are exactly what you would swallow if you weren't chewing your food, which these ornithischians do. In any case, the intelligence of a cow doesn't necess necessitate the physical capabilities of a cow, and it seems Crichton may have become a little confused in this respect. Uh, these animals have five-fingered hands, and when one scratches her head, the gesture gives it a pensive and thoughtful quality. And Kylie tells us it's because the animals have a skin problem, perhaps a fungus or an allergy, and the veterinarians are unsure of it. Hypsilophodon is typical of almost all the dinosaurs from this novel. Almost all of them were discovered before the turn of the 20th century. It was found in England in 1849 from the Wessex Formation, housed at the British Natural History Museum with the holotype number NHMR197, known from a skull. It's an early Cretaceous herbivore named in reference to the Hypsilophus, uh, which is the name of a genus of iguana, and odontos is Greek for tooth. So it's another iguana-type name, and Hypsilophus does mean high ridge, as is described in the novel. These critters were about 7.5 feet long and maybe 25 kilos, and they would have been fast-moving and lightly built, standing low and likely holding their body horizontal to the ground. Their tails were long and kept rigid by bony tendons attached to the tail vertebrae, so they probably weren't droopy, as they're described in the book, and they were originally believed to be well-adapted for climbing trees, but that is no longer how their fossils are interpreted. In the novel, this matches up pretty well. They may have bodies about four feet long, the same size as a deer, according to Tim, and so they'd have a four-foot body, a lengthy tail, and a long neck, and so about seven and a half feet. Kylie mentions their teeth, so let's get into that. Although it had a beak like other ornithischians, it still had five pointed triangular teeth in the front of its upper jaw, which most early Cretaceous herbivores had done away with. In the back, they had 11 teeth in their upper jaw and 16 in the lower jaw, and their rear teeth were fan-shaped. Their skulls were short and relatively large, with a triangular snout, ending in a sharply pointed beak, and they had very large eye sockets, and so perhaps big eyes, and if so, maybe that made them nocturnal, but that's just uh, extrapolating on, on the size of the eye socket. Who knows? Kylie says you can find these animals in the plains ahead or up in the trees on 136, which is in concert with some dated interpretations of the fossils, as mentioned. At 7.5 feet long and 55 pounds, while described like a gazelle in this chapter, their dimensions are more reflected in the shape and size of a big kangaroo. And they're said to bound away like kangaroos, showing their full bodies with, quote, massive hind limbs and long tails on 137. The animals aren't moving, so a mating call is blasted over a speaker by the fence, which presented a long nasal call like the honking of geese on 137, and then six lizard heads poke up above the three-foot-high yellow grass to comical effect. The mating sound is blasted a second time, and the animals react exactly the same way. The fixed repetition of the behavior was striking to Tim, and the gears grind in the car as they pull away, and that frightens the animals who bound away like kangaroos. The hypsilophodonts are considered a broader category of animals, of which Othnelia appears to be a subgroup, and so they speak of hypsilophodonts, but not necessarily hypsilophodon, although they all appear in this book here. Othnelia. Crichton says these are dark green animals, about the size of a baboon, who happily sit up in the trees, even though they're the gazelle of the dinosaur world, says Kylie. It looks like a lizard standing on its hind legs, balancing itself with a long, drooping tail. Othnelia are today synonymized with a, with a dinosaur called Nanosaurus, which means pygmy lizard. They're about three feet long, with cl were classically discovered in 1877, way before the turn of the 20th century, like almost every other critter in this book, and the holotype was uncovered from the Morrison from Formation in Utah. The holotype YPM 1913 is housed at the Yale Peabody Museum and is comprised of impressions of the dentary, the postcranial bits, including the ilium, thigh bones, shin bones, and a fibula. These guys are from the late Jurassic. Localities. 
We have uh, outside the visitor center. Outside the visitor center, which we call is a two-story all-glass and steel girder design, our group will begin their tour of the park. Their Toyota Land Cruisers emerge from an underground garage beneath the visitor center, and they are driverless and silent. From the visitor center, there is a cable in the roadway that guides the electric vehicles through the park. The first Land Cruiser. Grant, Sattler, and Malcolm climb into the first Land Cruiser with Gennaro. Mounted in the dashboard are two computer screens and a box that looks like a CD-ROM, a laser disc player controlled by a computer on page 134. The Land Cruisers also have portable walkie-talkies and a radio transmitter, too. Each car has two antennae on the roof and night vision goggles in the, quote, map pocket. So maybe there are more types than this, but I'm not a big car parts nomenclature kind of guy, but apparently there is a seat back map pocket, which you can picture on the back of a seat uh, that you rummage through while you're, you know, you sit in the rear or like when you're on an airplane, those pockets there. And the other is the map pocket on your door, which is that area that, you know, the place where people just like cram junk in those holes with all kinds of garbage and wrappers and stuff. Well, now you know there should be a map in there, not your crap. Or, in this case, a pair of night vision goggles. Uh, and then in the second Land Cruiser, Regis continues babysitting with Tim and Lex in the second Land Cruiser. Tim sits in the front seat, which he likes, and the Land Cruiser move with an electric hum. And remember, they're electric, and that's important. Uh, Regis says the cars were custom-built by Toyota in Osaka, Japan, to be lightweight and electric, to be non-polluting, which is a Jurassic Park policy, and the gears grind on 137, we learn, as they move on past the Hypsilophodon Highlands. On page 140, we'll learn more about the gears, the gear shifts acting up. That noise, though, scares the animals away. And we get a bit more information on the Isla Nublar. The first port of call during the tour is a grove of low, stumpy palm trees, which Kylie names as cycads, the, quote, prehistoric predecessors of palm trees on 135. There are also Benetitalians and ginkgos, as well as more modern plants like pine and fir trees, and swamp cypresses. Bennett etales are, quote, seed plants, which were around throughout the Mesozoic, and ginkgos are ginkgos and deciduous trees with big, almost clover-like leaves, though they're not grouped in threes and fours. The fences and retaining walls are screened by greenery, heightening the illusion that they're moving through real jungle, we're told on 136. And finally, we have the Hypsilophodon Highlands. The first stop on the tour heading south is from a low rise where there's a break in the foliage providing a view to the east. Quote, they all look to the left, we're told on 136. And there's a sloping forested area which opens into a field of yellow grass about three feet high. There's a loudspeaker mounted by the fence, we're told on 137. So we got some neat allusions and references. Uh, here we get Othniel Charles Marsh is mentioned, one of the infamous members of the Bone Wars. Marsh was the Yale Museum man who, dis, uh, who named scores of animals. The Othnelia is now synonymized with Nanosaurus, an animal that Marsh discovered way back in 1877. And uh, I guess it was named after him too, Othniel Charles Marsh and the Othnelia. Now it's Nanosaurus though. Stylistic techniques. This chapter begins with a quote, this way, everybody, this way, on 134, is, and that's a great way to enter into a chapter. Uh, the big tip on screenwriting everybody gets in Screenplays 101 is to enter a scene late and leave early. It means you're getting right to the point without spelling it out for your readers. And this is almost starting mid-sentence, as we already know we're midway through the tour, so this works out quite effectively. We have the M-dash. <sighs> now you goddamn come here, M-dash. Oops. I didn't ask for these goddamn kids to come. Turn off that in intercom, guys. Uh, here they're interrupted, I guess, as Regis turns the, the, the intercom off so the kids don't hear Gennaro just cursing away. Ellipses, two to four passengers to a car, please, dot, 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 on 134. This is the automated voice 
speaking, and it indicates that it's going to continue repeating. That ellipses suggest that that, that message just keeps looping on and on and on. So the ellipses does a good job of uh, implying that. Capitalization, welcome to Jurassic Park. All capitals flashes up on the screen as the tour begins, uh, because how else would you know you were welcome and entering a Jurassic Park without, without capitals? I guess it's a, another way to add emphasis. It certainly stands out. We always can kind of uh, call that shouting <laughs> in our emails, right? Literary techniques. There's an amazing book review uh, podcast called The Lit Society, and it's hosted by Kari and Alexis, and they review books. And they review Jurassic Park in a two-part series, and credit where credit's due. They rightly observe that Lex's baseball mitt is symbolic for her association and uh, relationship with her father. And uh, so she's fiddling with it. In the, so anyhow, all, shout out to them. They, they made an excellent observation there. And um, I'd love to have them on to talk about this book because they had some terrific insights in the, as they went over it. So in this chapter, when Tim looks back at Lex and she's pounding her fist into her baseball mitt, that symbolism is plain to see. Tim doesn't want to ride with her with the disapproval and ugliness that it, his father represents, making smacking sounds with each hit of her fist into the leather. He's hoping to escape into a delightful land of dinosaurs, escape into a dream come true, but this overbearing shadow of his father is still here in this park, right at his side all along the way. Similes, quote, bound above the grass like kangaroos on 137, which is a great simile because we know what kangaroos look like, especially when they're jumping, so we can associate that very clearly with the hypsilophodons. Motifs, the ideas of responsibility and safety continue here. There are rules on the tour. Apparently you must wear a helmet. Uh, which is this pith helmet handed out before they get into their cars. And the cars may only have between two and four passengers. All passengers under 10 years of age must be accompanied by an adult, we're told on 134. Why it's not four people max to a vehicle, and instead there's a restriction of only between two and four is strange. Like, somebody can't ride solo? It's against the rules? I don't know. More important, and perhaps this will further inform Grant's reaction at the end of the novel when he pins Gennaro up against the wall... Uh, way back in episode 10, Cowan Swain and Ross were told that Gennaro doesn't trust Hammond because Hammond is under too much pressure. He says on page 49, quote, We can't trust Hammond anymore. The EPA is investigating him. He's behind schedule on his Costa Rican resort. And the investors are getting nervous. There have been too many rumors of problems down there. Too many workmen have died. And now this business about a living Prucops at whatever on the mainland? We're told on 149. Put it this way, Gennaro knows that animals are getting off the island. He knows that people are dying, and specifically that too many workmen have died. And even the investors are hearing rumors of the, quote, problems down there. He knows it's not safe. He's basically here to see how bad it is. But he's keeping what he knows private. He doesn't ask about deaths at the park. He doesn't ask about accidents. Only about animal containment and wondering if the consultants believe it's a safe setup. If he knows about, quote, too many deaths, that seems like it should, like, come up during his inspection, right? And it doesn't. And now he's got these kids here. Obviously, responsibility and safety is not top of mind, even for the consultants, or at least for Gennaro, who's leading the consultants and their investigation. And the illusion of control continues. The animals aren't under control. What's happening to the animals isn't under control. The animals in their settings are not under control especially with the hypsilophodons in this chapter. Kylie tells us it's because the animals have a skin problem, perhaps a fungus or allergy. The veterinarians are unsure so far. Again, these are animals out of time in a new environment that doesn't work for them. And they don't fit in. And this is a continued theme in the novel, always present, that the animals don't fit in to the containers that Jurassic Park has built for them. A little bit more here for our ecological criticism. We just have a little note uh, that electric cars 
are, are something that uh, Jurassic Park prides themselves on, and they have a non-pollution policy, which I guess they must adhere to. So that's very interesting in this, uh, uh, just a quick little mention on page 134. Let's have, uh, I guess, some further discussions, maybe this one on marketing. Here we get a little bit more uh, of what Ed Regis has been working on. Recall the first sign we saw was just painted red on a board saying, Welcome to Jurassic Park. But in this chapter, we get a pith helmet that has a headband around the dome, which reads, Jurassic Park and features a blue dinosaur logo. So our famous red-yellow background with a black skull isn't consistent with the novel. It should be a blue dinosaur logo that, of course, remains incredibly incredibly ambiguous. What kind of dinosaur is it? Is it happy? Is it sad? Is it dangerous? Who knows? Jurassic Park has a non-polluting policy, so their cars are lightweight and electric on 135. Granted, these are not electric vehicles as you and I would know them today. They're more like a tram or a streetcar guided by an electric cable. So these would indeed be very lightweight if they had no battery etc. But they aren't on a track being tugged along like a ride. They are motorized, they're just receiving external power. Japan. We know that the landscaping and much of the capital investment is of Japanese origins, and we find that the automated electric vehicles are Toyota Land Cruisers, which is a Japanese company too, on 134. The CD-ROMs mounted in the Land Cruiser dashboards might be a reference to how technologically advanced Japan was in the 80s and 90s, and maybe they are today, I don't know. I just recall that, you know, the cultural sentiment of the 90s from a personal perspective was there was always this, I guess, understanding that the Japanese were technologically superior, their products more practical and better made, especially with electronics. And it seems that Crichton is employing that cultural understanding into this presentation of these Japanese vehicles, which I was able to confirm, you know, Japan held 33% of the American auto market in the 1980s, which is pretty significant that uh, a Japanese import would be one third of of America's car consumptions. And and that maybe also let, leads credence to that idea that they're being exceedingly technological. The cars are specially designed in any case to be lightweight and electric here. And that said, the Land Cruisers transmit to the motion sensors and as they arrive at a paddock or approach an animal in the park via transmissions between the motion sensors, the vehicle and the CD-ROM, the dashboard therefore presents information about whichever animals they are near. And that is pretty slick, I think. Um, people of visible minorities return. We get two workers in safari uniforms who are declaratively black. And their labeling further informs us that the, quote, woman handing out pith helmets beside Ed Regis is not described as black. They're uniformed, and they're performing as valets or like concierges, though they don't say anything on page 134. Instructions are given, but it's given by a recorded voice. So these are two more workers, specifically declaratively black, that don't get lines and don't say anything. This open and closed doors for people. Automation. The Toyota Land Cruisers operate by automation, and the recording of a voice asking for tourists to observe the car capacity limits happens here. So again, staff don't have to um, do either of these things, although apparently staff do need to be there to open your door. So that part has not... It seems like that could have been automated, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, feminism. A new woman appears. She says nothing, and she just stands beside Regis handing out pith helmets to people riding in the cars. So we got a new woman. Uh, she doesn't do a thing, uh, really. Child of the 80s. Mounted in the dashboard are two computer screens in a box that looks like a CD-ROM. A laser disc player controlled by a computer on 134, we're told. Bear in mind, having a computer in the dashboard in 89 was super advanced. While Sony had developed a CD-ROM in what appears to be 1982, even having a car phone in the 80s was pretty fancy, so this is decidedly high-tech. On the tour, uh, we get these pith helmets that are, like, handed out. Every is, is everybody wearing these? Like, in the cars while they're being driven around? 
these helmets are never mentioned again, but like, should we envision everyone wearing these pith helmets? For how long do you think we should believe that they wore these hats in their cars? Like, Lex and Regis are continuing to be described as wearing their Mets baseball caps, so like, they're not wearing these helmets, right? So here's the first listener question of the week. How long should we envision our tourists wearing pith helmets during the tour? And could Regis have been spared if he were wearing it? You tell me. The dinosaurs. The preconceptions of dinosaurs are challenged again on the tour, as Richard Kiley's voice says that the image of massive herbivores eating their way through swampy forests is incorrect. Quote, most dinosaurs were not as large as people think. The smallest dinosaurs were no bigger than a house cat, and the average dinosaur is as big as a pony, on page 136. In reality, uh, the smallest dinosaurs are the size of the smallest birds. So there you go. So think of like hummingbirds. That's the smallest dinosaur. When the mating call is blasted a second time, the animals react exactly the same way. The fixed repetition of the behavior is striking to Tim on 137. And it'll be striking to Grant later on in the book too. This is our first observation that these animals are a bit reactionary, haven't much of a memory, and are pretty stupid. This will come up again as they're interacting with other herbivores, and they're said to have the intelligence of a domestic cow. Somehow this seems dumber than a cow too. Timeline. The animals bound away in the, quote, the afternoon sunlight on page 137. So it's getting later in the afternoon, or maybe still just afternoon. But that's uh, that's where we are during the tour, at, uh, during the middle of the day. It'll quit being afternoon soon, because the sun's going to start going down. We'll see. Uh, island layout. So recall the northern area is all gated in, and at a high ele- elevation. Japanese-style waterfalls tumble away from the pool decks, and the mountainous elevation of the helipad looms at the far north end of Isla Nublar. Exiting the visitor area on the tour, they stop first at this grove of low, stumpy cycads, ginkgos, and coniferous trees, and eventually reach the Hypsilophodon Highlands. We're told they're heading south. They find the highlands to their east, and that suggests that they may have been traveling on the west coast of the island. So to their east is the island's, is the island's interior. So that's how I envision the island as they're going. They're coming down the western side of the island. Uh, and that's everything we got out of this chapter this week. Uh, thank you so much to my special guest, uh, Douglas Henderson. Thank you for coming on, Doug. I really appreciate it. We had a great conversation on my end. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Um, I want to sign off today also thanking everyone for listening. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryanesrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, just drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook, facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter, RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.